This morning, we're going to be talking about one of our favorite subjects. We're going to be talking about food. If you think about it, food plays a big role in our lives. Uh, Food, you know, you you have food at events, special events, anniversaries, birthdays, weddings. Can you imagine getting invited to an anniversary or a birthday or a wedding and they said, there's no food, nothing to eat, nothing to drink. You'd say, well, that's not really, doesn't sound very fun, right? We need food to make it fun, right? We, We eat three meals a day. And if you're like us at our house, we're in the middle of eating one meal and we're talking about the next meal. We're already getting excited about eating again. What are we going to eat tonight? You know, we talk about it. We get excited about it. We have rooms in our house designated solely for food and eating. Think about that. Some of you have like three rooms in your house that are just set aside for food. Food plays a big role in our lives. And I don't think we're strange in that way. Food plays a big role in the storyline of the Bible. In fact, almost every single major event or story in the Bible, is there's food that goes with it. There's food that's associated with it. What was the very first command that God gave Adam and Eve? Do not eat from this particular tree. What was the very first sin they ate from that particular tree? Right? And the Israelites end up in Egypt. Why? Because of a lack of food. There's a famine. And God promises to deliver them from that land and to provide them a land flowing with... Milk and honey. It's all about the food, right? Jesus calls himself the bread of life. He tells us we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. One of the great miracles of Jesus was the feeding of the 5,000. And today, this morning, we're going to be talking about the most significant meal in the Bible, the Lord's Supper. And then after we get through talking about it, we're actually going to celebrate it by taking it. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Mark 14. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to read verses 12 through 25, and this is the very inspired Word of God. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful you have given us this meal, which is a picture and a sign of your covenant faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. I pray as a result of our time together this morning, we will better understand the meaning of this meal so that we take it in a manner that's worthy of you 
and encouraging and edifying to us for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we are continuing our sermon series in Mark. We are in the end of Jesus' ministry, the end of his life on earth, what's called the Passion Week. And the event that we're looking at takes place on the, the Thursday night of that week. This is the night before his death. And of course, one of the key events that happens on this night is a meal, right? A meal is associated with the most important event of our Christian faith. This meal is referred to in various ways throughout church history. Some people call it the Lord's Supper. Some call it the Lord's Table. Some people refer to it as communion. Some traditions refer to it as the Eucharist. Where does that word come from? It's a Greek word. It means to give thanks. So when it says Jesus gave thanks and then said, take this as my body, that Eucharizo is where we get the word Eucharist. But I think it's especially helpful when we think about the Lord's Supper to think about three aspects. I think this meal is pointing us to three different aspects. It's pointing us to the past. It's pointing us to the present. And it's pointing us to the future. And when we take this meal, if we have all three aspects in mind, I think we will be taking the meal in the most meaningful way that we can. So let's begin by talking about how this meal points us to the past. The Lord's Supper and the past. Uh, sometimes this meal is referred to as the Last Supper. Interestingly, maybe even ironically, it's actually the first meal of its kind, and it's the first of many more to come. It is the first divinely ordained Lord's Supper. Interestingly, it's the last divinely ordained Passover meal. I'll say that one more time. It's the first divinely ordained Lord's Supper meal. It is the last divinely ordained Passover meal. In the disciples' minds, this is a Passover. They are taking the Passover. By the way, that's why they're in Jerusalem. They traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover. You take the Passover inside the city. You don't take the Passover outside the city. That's why they're staying in Bethany, but they go into the city, to the upper room, to take the Passover. After they've done that, they leave. That's why you go to Jerusalem. You go to Jerusalem for the festival, for the Passover. That's where the meal is taken. Uh, three different times it's referred to as the Passover in our passage. Verse 12, verse 14, and verse 16. And it raises the question, now what again is the Passover? And the answer is, it's a meal that God told his people to take once a year to remember what he did for them 1,500 years prior to, to Jesus' life and ministry. It's a, it's a reminder of the Exodus. What is the Exodus? That's when God said to Pharaoh, let my people go. They're in bondage in Egypt. Pharaoh said no. So God sent the plagues. The final plague God sent was the angel of death that came through town and killed the firstborn child. And the only way you could be, uh, you know, um, not experience the death of the firstborn child is to put blood from a lamb over your doorpost and the angel of death would pass over those houses that had the blood applied to the doorpost. And so God delivered his people miraculously from Egypt, provided them with a land flowing with milk and honey and told them, I want you to take the meal once a year and remember how I brought you out with an outstretched arm and an outstretched hand, right? With mighty, mighty arm and an outstretched hand. What were the different elements of the meal? There were four cups involved in the meal, four cups of wine. Uh, the four cups of wine were associated with four promises found in Exodus 6, 6 through 7. These four promises include rescue from Egypt, 
freedom from slavery, redemption by God's divine power, and a renewed relationship with God. You will be my people. And the youngest child would ask the question, why is tonight different than every other night? And the host of the meal would explain why tonight is different from every other night and retell the story of the Exodus and use the elements of the meal, which were symbolic and pointed to the different elements of the story. So you got the bitter herbs that reminds us of the bitterness of slavery. You've got the unleavened bread, which reminds us God's people were not to put a leavening agent in the bread and sit around all day long and wait for the bread to rise. No, you eat the bread and reminded that this is going to be a quick, a quick process. God's going to deliver you quickly. When, when it's time, you go. You don't sit around and wait. You go. It was a reminder, the quickness of leaving and escaping. There was a lamb, of course, symbolic of the lambs that were slaughtered and the blood plastered over the doorpost. And finally, there was a hymn that was sung at the end, a Hallel psalm. And interestingly, look at Mark 14, 26. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they, they finished this meal, this Passover meal, by singing a hymn. I assume one of the Hallel psalms. And then they left the city. You know, you got to take the mill in the city. Left the city, went back to the Mount of Olives where they stayed and where Jesus would pray and be betrayed. But what makes this so shocking is what Jesus does. He changes the script. He changes the script. And not only that, he makes it about himself. It's a script that had been in place for 1,500 years. It's a script that the disciples would have known from celebrating year in and year out. And they know how it's going to go. And yet Jesus stands up and says, you see this bread? You know what it represents? And they're thinking, yeah, it's unleavened bread. And it reminds us that we left quickly and hastily. And Jesus says, no, the bread represents my body. And I'm sure they went, what? What did he just say? He just went way off script. What is he talking about? And then Jesus, I'm sure, do you see this cup? Do you know what this cup represents? And I'm sure they're thinking, well, we thought we knew what it represented. Right? This cup represents my blood poured out for many. Now, how can Jesus do this? You know, who does he think he is? Well, the answer is he's God. And when you're God, you can change the script, even if it is 1,500 years old. He's the Lord of the feast. He's the host. And he's saying, the Exodus is ultimately pointing to me. The Passover meals that have been celebrated for 1,500 years are ultimately pointing to me. I am the fulfillment of these things. In fact, some people have mentioned that there's no, there's no reference to an actual lamb being eaten at this Last Supper, this Passover meal. Where's the lamb? Some people have suggested, well, Jesus is the lamb. It doesn't need to be a, a, an animal lamb because Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who is present at this meal. But he's changing the script and he can do that because of who he is. He's very much in charge. He's very much in control. And we see that here. He, he, we see him orchestrating things. He says to two of the disciples, you two guys, go on to the city. You're going to see a man walking with a jar of water. Follow him. Follow him to the house. When you get to that house, to ask for the master of the house and tell him that uh, you know, we want the, the, get, get the room ready for us. Show, show you where the room is. And we see Jesus orchestrating things. It's almost, it seems miraculous. How does he know there's going to be a man with water walking? He's orchestrating things. He's in charge. He says, he knows ahead of time, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is about to betray me. He knows it. It's not shocking to him. It doesn't take him by surprise. 
In fact, I think this is why there's so much secrecy about sending the two ahead. And he says, follow the man with the water and he'll take you to the room. Because if Jesus just broadcasted it to everybody where they're going to be eating the meal, what would happen? Judas would go tell where Jesus is going to be for the Last Supper. And it's not yet Jesus' time. So he says, I can't have Judas know where I'm going to be. I know what Judas is about to do. So I can't tell you guys where the address is. So instead, you two go to the city. You're going to see a man walking with water. Follow him. He'll take you to the house. Because Jesus still has things to do. He's got to wash their feet. Teach them an important lesson about leadership. You still have the Lord's Supper. You still got all of John 13 through 17. All of the teaching of Jesus you find in John 13 through 17 happens that night there in that room. These things have to happen. Jesus is in control. He's going to be arrested. He knows it. He's going to be handed over. He knows it. But it's going to be on his watch, his time. He's in control. He's orchestrating things. He's the host of the meal. And he has the authority. He's in control. He's in control even as he goes to the cross. He goes to the cross willingly. So as we take this meal this morning, we are supposed to look to the past. And yes, we can certainly look to the way distant past of the the Exodus and the Passover and remember the blood that was pasted on the door so that the angel of death would pass over. But that was an event that was pointing forward to a more ultimate Exodus, a new Exodus. The Exodus whereby Jesus' blood would be poured out. And if his blood gets applied to you, then the angel of death can pass over you. His blood was poured out for the sins of many, our text tells us. Uh, I, I remember as a kid taking the Lord's Supper at church. And in my mind, the thing that sticks out to me in my memory the most, uh, the one element that distinguished the Lord's Supper is I always remember wanting to go around as a kid and collect all the little cups after everybody had taken the Lord's Supper and left their cups behind. And it was almost like a competition among the kids. We'd go around and see who could collect the most. And this past week, as I was thinking about that, I kind of thought, oh, that's kind of gross. You know, everybody's been... This is, you know, pre-pandemic and we were kids and nobody thought about germs. And so we're taking all these used cups and seeing who can get the most. And I think we took them home sometimes even. And in my mind, I thought these are going to make a really great science experiment. You know, what can I do with these in a science experiment? I don't remember ever doing that. But I asked my wife, did you all ever do this? You know, when you were growing up at your church? And she said, I do think I remember going around and collecting the cups. That's, that's what the Lord's Supper was in my young mind. And it's interesting how as a kid, you just, you know, you view things a little differently. You remember things a little differently. You notice things a little differently. If you were to ask me as a kid, maybe five or six years old, well, Chris, what is, what is the 4th of July? You know, I probably would have said to you, oh, that's, that's when we eat hot dogs. You know, once again, the food, right? It's all about the food. That's when we eat hot dogs and we grill out. And then afterwards, we shoot our own personal fireworks. And then we usually go somewhere and watch this big fireworks show. That's what the 4th of July is, right? Well, <laughs> you know, as you get a little older, you kind of realize the 4th of July is not first and foremost hot dogs and fireworks, right? The 4th of July is something we celebrate. And what are we celebrating? We are celebrating an historical event that happened in 1776. And there's a very real sense in which if you don't get that, if the 4th of July for you is only hot dogs and fireworks, you don't really get the 4th of July. You're not really celebrating the 4th of July, right? You're not really celebrating the 4th the way you should until you get what happened in history. 1776, these events, we are here today celebrating because of this. And in a very similar way, 
If you don't get that the Lord's Supper is first and foremost about an event in the past, namely about 2,000 years ago, you don't really get the Lord's Supper. For you, it's just tradition. It's just what you do. We go to church, we take the Lord's Supper, we go home. That's what we do. It is what it is, right? You're not really taking the Lord's Supper. Just like I'm not really celebrating the fourth if all it is for me is hot dogs and fireworks. You're not really celebrating the Lord's Supper if in your mind you're not recognizing these elements. This, this meal is first and foremost pointing us to the past. Jesus said, take it in remembrance of me. We're supposed to remember. It's, it's, it's called a memorial sometimes. We refer to it as a memorial. What are we doing? We're remembering. It's like a monument. We don't have a place we go. We have something we do that Jesus gave us to remember what he did for us. So as we take the meal this morning, I encourage you, first and foremost, think about the past, roughly 2,000 years ago. But second, let's talk about the Lord's Supper and the present. Not only does the Lord's Supper point us to the past, the Lord's Supper points us to the present. In fact, sometimes this is referred to as a communion. That raises an interesting question. What exactly is a communion? With whom are we communing? Hopefully we're communing with the Lord Jesus. But we're also communing with one another as a family as we take this meal. Where do we get that word communion? We get it from 1 Corinthians 10, 16, which says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And the Greek word behind that word participation is the word koinonia, often translated fellowship. So is it not a fellowship in the body? Or is it not a fellowship in the blood? And the King James translates that word koinonia, translates it communion. There's a communion in the blood. There's a communion in the body. And however you translate it, I don't really care. You know, Koinonia, communion, participation, fellowship. The point is, the point of the text is, something is happening in the present while we take the meal. There's something happening here. Jesus says in verse 22, famously, this is my body. Verse 24, this is my blood. And of course, this raises a huge debate that has been debated throughout church history. How literally should we take that? When Jesus says, this is my body, how literally does he mean that? And of course, the Roman Catholic tradition has historically said we should take it very literally. They say it literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. And so according to Roman Catholic theology, you know, Jesus is literally getting sacrificed over and over and over and over every time the Lord's Supper or the Mass is being taken. That's why when you see a Roman Catholic crucifix, you usually see Jesus on it because they think of him as constantly being sacrificed, like millions of times. And uh, we, of course... Uh, held to the more traditional Protestant view and specifically the Baptist view that we should not take this literally, that the body and the blood of Jesus are not physically here with us. Jesus is reigning in heaven from God's right hand and uh, he's not here physically. This is not physical, physically the body of Jesus. Uh, the Lutheran position sort of takes this middle median approach between the, the Baptist or his Protestant view and the Catholic view. But Baptists, I will admit, have sometimes gone a little too far in the way we've, we've rejected 
Uh, and the way we've, we've explained this, we've almost gone so far as to say Jesus is not present at all in the Lord's Supper. And I just point out, he better be present, right? It's called the Lord's Supper, after all. If he's not here in any way whatsoever, what are we doing here taking the Lord's Supper, right? We've almost gone so far as to say, we believe Jesus is present everywhere, but when we take this meal, he's not here. And I want to say, he better be here, right? He better be here spiritually. He better be here by his Spirit, by the Holy Spirit here to bless his people as we take uh, the bread and the cup. So I do hold unapologetically to the historic Baptist view of the Lord's Supper, which, by the way, is included in your sermon notes, our doctrinal statement on this. I do believe that the elements are symbolic. They symbolically represent the body and the blood of Jesus. I, I, I hold this view because I think that's how the disciples would have understood it. I think that's how Jesus wanted the disciples to understand it. I don't think the disciples took him literally when he said, this is my body. Just like I don't think they took him literally when he said, I am the door or I am the gate you know, of the sheep pen. I don't think they said, well, Jesus, show us the hinges if you're really the gate. Right? They don't, they're not taking him literally everything he says. And when he says, this is my body and this is my blood, I don't think they're taking it literally. I don't think that they thought of eating that bread as hurting him. I don't think it hurt him when they took the bite of the bread. I don't think he went, out. You know, you just took that bread, and that's my body, and therefore it hurt me. No, obviously. That's silly, right? They're taking the bread. His body is there. They see him. They're not eating his flesh. They're eating the bread. The bread is symbolic of his body, which is there. By the way, his body is not here physically. His body is at the right hand of God, reigning from heaven. And Jesus gave us the meal because he's not with us physically. That's the whole point of the meal. I'm not with you. I will be absent from you. But take the meal to remember me and to remember my body broken for you and my blood poured out for you. That's why in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six he says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we take this meal, we are doing something. We are saying something. We are proclaiming something. What are we saying? We are saying we are a part of the new covenant today. Like it's happening now. We are God's people. We are followers of Jesus. We are members of the new covenant body of God. Say, so where do you get that language? New covenant. Well, I get it right there in verse 24. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. In Luke's gospel, he says, this blood is the new covenant. Covenant is how God relates to His people. He relates to His people through covenants. Covenants include God's promises. I will do this for you. I will commit to you to do this. Covenants include God's expectations. This is what I expect of you to do in return. Covenants are ratified by blood in the Old Testament. The blood of an animal. The new covenant is not ratified by the blood of an animal. The new covenant is ratified by the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God's Son. How does it get applied? In the Exodus, the blood literally, physically gets applied to the door so that the angel of death passes over. How does the blood of Jesus get applied to me today so that the angel of death will pass over me, God's wrath will pass over me? And the answer is, it gets applied to you by faith, by hearing and believing. You hear the good news of what Jesus did for you, recognize your sin and believe it, and the blood gets applied to you. By the way, that's the same way it worked in the Old Covenant. They heard and they believed. They were told the message. The angel of death is coming. God's wrath is coming. 
put blood over your doorpost and be saved. They heard it. They either believed it or they didn't believe it. If they didn't believe it, they wouldn't put the blood over and they would be swallowed up in God's wrath. But those who did believe, those who heard and believed the message, the bad news and the good news, the wrath is coming, but you can be spared. Those who heard and believed and applied the blood, the angel of death passed over. For those today who hear and believe what Jesus has done through the cross, through his death, burial, and resurrection, you can have the blood of Jesus applied to you. Right? And the, the signs of that faith are twofold. There's two signs, two ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are pictures of that new covenant that God has established with His new people. Right? And the, the two go together. The Lord's Supper and baptism are closely related to one another. We often don't think of that in our minds, but they are. And our doctrinal statement bears that out if you want to read that later today. Why, do they, why are they so closely related? Because they are the two ordinances that Jesus gave to the church, that Jesus said, these are the two pictures, the two signs of the new covenant. They are pictures of, of the gospel. Let's talk about the Lord's Supper. How does it picture the gospel? Because the cup represents the blood of Jesus poured out at the cross. The, the bread represents the body. And there's one other element of the meal. There's the element of us eating it. Think about that. Jesus gave us a meal to eat, not to look at, to eat. There's a mealness to the meal that we're supposed to appreciate. The taste, we are ingesting it. I am taking it in my hands. I am putting it in my body. I am saying, I need this. I need this bread. What is that? That is a sign. That is symbolic. What does it symbolize? It symbolizes faith in the Lord Jesus. We are saying, I need Jesus' body broken and blood poured out for me. And I need it now. I need it today. It's happening now. I need Jesus for me right now applied to me. So we're saying that when we take the Lord's Supper. And that is one of the reasons why I usually make a really big deal and say this meal is only for believers. People who are trusting in Christ for their salvation. It's It's not just to do it because it's the tradition. It means something. We're saying something. We're proclaiming something. So you should only take the meal if you're willing to make that your proclamation. If you say, I need the body and blood of Jesus poured out for me and I'm trusting in Christ alone for my salvation, I take the meal symbolically of that faith. We also make a big deal here that you need to be in good standing with a New Testament church. And once again, I'm not just making this up. It comes from our doctrinal statement. We believe it's biblical that this is for people who are in good standing with Christ's body. If you don't care about Christ's body represented by the church, why would you care about Christ's body represented by the bread? It doesn't make any sense. This is a meal for believers who are in good standing with a New Testament church. Because think about this. It's a communion. It's a communal meal. We don't pass it out and say, take it as you like. We don't pass it out and say, take it home and take it as the Spirit leads. We pass it out and we take it as a family. It's a family meal. You eat together as a family. There's something special about it. You're eating with your brothers and your sisters in Christ. You're not solely taking the meal as an individual. This is how the meal was viewed in our passage. They took it as a family. They took it from one cup. They drank from one cup. They took one loaf of bread and broke it. Jesus didn't say, hey guys, you know, go get right with God and have a quiet time. And when you feel compelled to take the meal, go take it on your own. It's about you and God. No, it's a family 
ordinance, as a family meal. And that's what makes Judas's betrayal so deeply personal. Look at verse 20. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. One of you who is sitting with me as my brother at my family table, sharing bread and dipping bread into the same bowl as me is the one who will betray me. That's what makes it so, so deeply wrong. So when we take the Lord's Supper this morning, here's the point. Something special is happening here right now. We, we are communing with the Lord Jesus in a way you can't commune with Jesus apart from your family. We are communing as brothers and sisters. We are coming together as a family saying we are members of the new covenant. We're trusting in Christ's body, blood poured out for us. And we are covenanting with one another. We are covenanting with one another. We are saying something like, I'm a part of you and you're a part of me. I'm asking you to hold me accountable. Hold me accountable to the gospel. Hold me accountable to grow in the gospel. Hold me accountable to keep believing. This is not just between me and God. This is between me and you. You're my brother. You're my sister. We come together as a family to the table symbolically, eating the bread, saying we're doing this as one. We are one body in Christ. I remember... Uh, visiting Washington, D.C. with my family. I think I was in high school. Might have been a little younger, a little older. And we went around and visited all the different museums and all the different memorials and had a good trip. And I remember, I think it was the la- maybe one of the last memorials we went to. It was in the evening. And I think it was just me and my dad. And I remember him getting tear- kind of tearing up. It was at the Vietnam Memorial. And I thought, What's, why is this one different? Why why did I not see him tear up at the other ones? What is it about this one that all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the feel changed, right? Something's different about this one. And the answer is it was deeply personal, right? He, he knew people who went to this war. He knew people who didn't come back from this war. This wasn't just a wall. This wasn't just a memorial. This wasn't just an interesting war that you study in the past. For him, this meant something. It was personal. And in the same kind of way, as we take the Lord's Supper, we certainly look to the past, and there is certainly a memorial aspect to it. But it ought to be, and it better be, personal. There ought to be a feel. There's something happening in the present as we take the Lord's Supper. We are communing with Christ. We are communing with Christ's body. His church, His bride, it's a family meal. We're saying something. So I, I want to encourage you as we take the meal this morning, this might sound strange, it's not just between you and God. So I want to encourage you to look around at your family as you take this meal. Like if, if it was just about you and God, if it was solely an individual thing, then why would we do this together on Sunday morning at this property at this time? Why not say just, you know, go do it when you want? Like, just take the elements, go home, whenever you feel compelled, your quiet time, when you feel the Spirit lead, you take it because it's between you and God. It's not just between you and God. We are gathered here at this property on Sunday morning at this time as a church family to worship together. And one of the ways we faithfully worship together is do what Jesus told us to do, which is to take this meal together as a community, a communal meal And so as you take it, yes, it is between you and God, but it's also you and God and your brother and your sister. 
the one sitting close to you, the one sitting across the room, and even the one who was sitting in here at the previous service. It is a, it is a communal family event. So you, some of you may say, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not a member here. We would, we would say, if you are in good standing with a New Testament church, you are welcome to take this meal with us. If you are not a believer, if you are not in good standing with a New Testament church, I would encourage you to ask yourself the question. Why are you interested in the symbolic body of Jesus in this bread if you're not interested in the symbolic body of Jesus represented by an actual group of people, his church? As we take the Lord's Supper, we look to the past. As we take the Lord's Supper, we look to the present. And finally, thirdly, as we take the Lord's Supper, we look to the future. What does the Lord's Supper possibly have to do with the future? Good question. Look at verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I mentioned earlier that at the Passover meal there were four cups. A lot of people believe that it was at the third cup when Jesus transformed the meal. And a lot of people believe that Jesus didn't drink the fourth cup. The next cup that Jesus would drink would be the cup of God's wrath at the cross. And Jesus here is making a promise. I can just picture him holding up the fourth cup and the guys are expecting him to drink it because that's what you do. You drink the fourth cup. But I can imagine him saying, guys, I'm not going to drink this meal again. I'm not going to eat this meal with you again until that day when this meal is fulfilled in the future in the kingdom of God and I eat this meal with you when it's fulfilled and we eat it new in the kingdom of God. In other words, when I return for you, I'm making a promise to you. It, this, is a part of, this is a part of the covenant promise. I will not leave you as orphans. I will return. I'm leaving you. I know that's hard to hear, but here's the good news. I will return. That's the fourth. Remember, that's the fourth promise. Exodus 6, 7. I'll take you to be my people. You will be my people. I will return for you. I will gather you. Jesus says, I will return for you. I will gather you. I will take you to a place that I have prepared for you. The book of Revelation describes that feast on that day as the wedding supper of the Lamb. The book of Revelation points forward to that future day and, and uses the, 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 the image of a feast, a celebration, a wonderful meal. It's going to be glorious. And all the meals and all the celebrations that we've had along the way are all just foreshadowing of that ultimate meal. And by the way, I like to point out it's going to be a lot more than just a little cracker and a little cup of juice. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be glorious. Lots of chocolate cake. Right? <laughs> Until then, we take this meal and we not just look to the past and we don't just look to the present, we look to the future. And it's a celebration. We're saying we, we believe that that fourth cup's going to be consumed on that day when the Lord Jesus returns for us. And, and in fact, our doctrinal statement talks about this. We are anticipating His second coming. We're celebrating now a future reality. And we know it's going to happen because of what Christ has done in the past. I got to go to a Razorback football game several years ago. They played at Colorado State at Fort Collins. So I got to go to a game that was only a couple hours away. And I took my oldest son. He was the only one interested at the time in going with me. And uh, 
we played really well for the first three quarters. We were dominating them. And it was fun. As a Razorback fan, half the stadium was filled with Razorback fans. They traveled well. Wearing red, calling the hogs. Uh, very proud, you know, members of the SEC. And we were probably a little obnoxious to the Colorado State fans. And they let us hear about it in the fourth quarter when we absolutely blew it. And I don't know how in the world, but we just lost the game, blew a huge lead. I don't know how it's possible. Um, but we got beat. You know, we dropped the ball. Literally, figuratively, we dropped the ball. And they let us hear about it. You know, they had, we were obnoxious for three quarters, and we were in their home, and they let us hear about it. And, you know, wearing red, leaving the stadium, uh, you know, we got yelled at. Some choice words spoken to us. You know, it was just like, just get to the car and get home. And an important lesson you learn as a Razorback fan is you never celebrate too early. <laughs> you don't celebrate till the game is over. Like, it doesn't matter how many minutes are left. It doesn't matter how much you're up. You wait. And I'm trying to tell my kids this because they like to text their friends who are fans of other teams that we play and start bragging while in the middle of the game. And I say, you don't do that. <laughs> You wait to the end, and then you brag of after, you know, and tell them how terrible they were, right? No, not that last part. Uh, I bring this up this morning to say uh, this is not the case with the Christian faith, and it's not the case with the Lord's Supper. We can celebrate now, even though it's early. We can celebrate now because we know the victory is secure. We know for sure the Lord Jesus will return. We know for sure He will win in the end. We know for sure for those of us who are in Christ, we will win in the end. So we can take this meal with great confidence and great security, knowing, celebrating the fact that that day will come and we will eat this meal. It will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God with the Lord Jesus and it will be a glorious feast. And we are confident of that because of what Christ has done in the past. So as we take the supper, we certainly look to the past. We certainly look to the body broken, the blood poured out, and the events that happened 2,000 years ago. It's necessary. That's the starting point. That's necessary. You miss that, you miss it all. But we don't stay there. We also look to the present. Something's happening now. It's not just a memorial. It's personal. It's deeply personal. We are communing with the Lord Jesus Christ by His Spirit as we take this meal. And we are communing with the Lord Jesus in a unique way because we're communing with our brothers and sisters, His other children, our brothers and sisters that we have covenanted together with in the gospel. And of course, we look to the future and we celebrate that day when the Lord Jesus returns and this meal is fulfilled. And uh, for these reasons, we ask that only believers who are in good standing with the New Testament church, take this meal. If you're not, we would ask you to not take it. So we want to give you a few moments to examine, confess, reflect, pray. If you haven't yet gotten the elements and you'd like to, they are at the back of the room. You can get them. I'll give you a few moments of silence and then I'll lead us from there. So let's bow our heads.